right, all right. Happy Saturday to you, my very thirsty listener. It is a beautiful day again here in the Rose City. I am Ryan McGarrion, your host and Airways bartender. This is the Liquid Lifestyle on the Radio Northwest Network. And uh, if you haven't joined us before, once again, we are a show or broadcast dedicated to enhancing each and every one of your future potent potable beverages experience, beverage experiences. And uh, that goes for your beverage experiences here in Portland and far beyond. So uh, last week, as you recall, if you were tuned in, we were on the road in Aspen, Colorado, and we had an awesome time chatting with Charlotte Boise, the Hendrix brand champion, talking gin and Hendrix gin. We are back in the Rose City, but uh, not in studio. We're actually... Uh, across the uh, Willamette Ocean, as I like to call it, here on the east side, uh, the ever-growing and exciting east side at Cooper's Hall, which is a really killer new concept, uh, not only, I think, uh, within uh, the culture of Portland food and drink, but for the nation. It's what I would call a wine tavern. I mean, to call it a wine bar, it doesn't really speak to the grandiosity of what they do here. And uh, sitting with me here today is their partner, uh, co-owner uh, and uh, their wine czar, we'll call him Joel Gunderson. Welcome to the show, Joel. Thanks for having me, Ryan. You bet, man. So, uh, you know, the thing that I wanted to to dive into today, be, uh, more than anything else, was uh, the idea of keg wine, and, and that's going to be pretty much what our, our show is about. And I don't know if a lot of you listening know this, but uh, wine is slowly but surely moving into keg format. And I tell you, the first time that I saw that was over at Irving Street Kitchen maybe three, four years ago. And since then, there's been one name that I keep hearing when it comes to the curation of keg wine programs, and that is Joel. So, Joel, I'd love for you to just share with us uh, how this whole keg wine thing got started. Yeah, absolutely. I would say for me, the whole keg wine thing got started when uh, Kurt Huffman and Aaron Barnett opened restaurant St. Jack. And... Kurt, the partner there, has fantastic ideas all the time. And one of them was, when we opened St. Jack, was to pattern <clears throat> how we purchased wine af- after how he purchased wine when he ran a restaurant in Lyon, France, which was to go directly to the wineries and talk them into putting their wine in a sort of bag-in-box format. Um, about the same time, I heard what was happening over at Irving Street Kitchen and they kind of imported that idea of that's actually a San Francisco owned um, restaurant. So we got in touch with them. We figured out what they were doing. And instead of doing this sort of bag and box format, we went to kegs. And I immediately just started knocking on doors in the Willamette Valley and started talking winemakers into putting their wine into my kegs. Um, that was about, that was 2010. And nobody was doing it here, really. And it was scary for a lot of the winemakers. It was scary for me, but um, we just really went for it. I think a lot of early adopters were people like Tyson Crowley with Crowley Wines. Um, Patrick Taylor over at Cana's Feast became a huge partner for me, and we've done a lot of fun things with keg wine since then. Um, But beyond that, yeah, in the last four years, we've really seen a climb um, but when we opened St. Jack again, there was nobody really doing it. That's cool. So just to kind of recap on that, um, 
the first uh, kind of program you saw was over at Irving Street, kind of in the same way that I saw it. And you just kind of kind of took that concept in Portland and ran with it. So in a lot of ways, you're you're kind of the father of that movement um, in Portland. I know other people do it, but once again, I, I very much attribute it to you. You know, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, as I go through the thought process of, you know, this idea of wine and kegs, let's talk through the benefits of that, um, Joel. Absolutely. So there are a, a lot of benefits, actually. First and foremost, it's incredibly environmentally friendly. We're cutting down on a lot of um, glass waste. But for a business owner, it's incredibly cost efficient. And we cut down on wine waste as well. A lot of people who haven't adopted it yet, including winemakers, um, one of the things I tell them is, as far as how, it sh- how the wine shows, is that um, you don't know if a bartender is checking your wine for cork taint or if a general manager is pouring that wine on the fifth day or sixth day. Uh, the idea with wine and keg is that once it's tapped, it stays fresh. We use a blend of nitrogen and CO2, 75% nitrogen, 25% CO2, and um, that keeps a stable environment for the wine. So right there, the guest always has fresh, delicious product. And then also the winemaker knows that their product is being shown properly as opposed to you know, being poured with cork taint or being poured on the fourth or fifth day so yeah you know what uh it's been fun to see the evolutions in wine over the past what two decades you know moving from corked bottles to screw caps and now seeing this movement towards wine in the end you know and you see improvements in the way beer is handled as well in the end i think the goal it seems like for everybody now is it's all about how do i maximize my ability to bring qual my quality from the vineyard and the winery to the palate of the guests and and the keg thing makes all the sense in the world and and being a bartender myself you know i know that uh, not having not having to you know crack a, a bottle for every four pours i know how much speed that you know we have wine on tap over at oven and shaker and hamlet that you've curated and it's just even that small amount of work i don't have to do is it just feels like genius and it's just such a morale booster but um Let's see. So who have you mentioned the Crowley wine? Uh, who else has been a, an early adopter besides Crowley and Patrick Taylor over Canis Feast? Any, anybody else that you want to name with regards to that? Yeah, here in Oregon, um, Herb Quaddy with Quaddy North down in southern Oregon. Ann Hubach with Helioterra has been a real partner for us. Uh, she makes fantastic wine. And that Helioterra, when I think Helioterra, I'm thinking of that really dope rosé that, uh, that I've seen on a few taps in, uh, in your programs. Uh, that's been a real winner, hasn't it? Absolutely. It's a sort of perennial favorite down at Oven and Shaker. Um, another fun thing that she's done, and the cool thing about keg wines, honestly, is that uh, we do a more Ved rosé with, with Anne, and the whole reason why she does that is because of keg programs. She... It gave her sort of the liberty to be creative and, and take a risk with a product. If, if the keg program hadn't been around, she wouldn't have had a home for it. So that gave her the opportunity to experiment with wine, which is one of the, you know, we talk about financial um, benefits in keg wine. We talk about it staying fresh longer. But one of the things that's most exciting for me with keg wine really is that it gives the opportunity 
to play more. And that means either working with young winemakers that don't necessarily have an outlet for their wine. Uh, we have Holden Wines here in Portland, Oregon, and he's just a, a young winemaker rocking it, and we show support to him. But also, honestly, doing very small batches, very exclusive batches. So Safer Oven and Shaker, you know, we work with Cana's Feast, and we have a blend that Kathy Wims, the chef there, and Patrick Taylor put together, and we started that up three years ago, and we haven't looked back. It's, it's cool. And I, I, don't, I think with bottles, we, we couldn't do that. We, you, you don't bottle two barrels of wine. It's just, it's just not something that works for the winery. Man, I, I didn't think about that, but you know, now that I think about the, the, the wine that Patrick and Kathy do, the Cavallo Rosso, which is this kind of attempt at a beautiful super Tuscan. So, you're, I mean, that's never going to happen without this new foray into these formats, is it? I don't think so. I mean, I haven't seen it. I, you, you might see it for massive, large-scale hotels or something like that where they can do an exclusive private label. But as far as small batches, boutique wine, bringing higher quality to the guests at, at, a, at a competitive price, um, I think keg wine really opens the opportunity for that. And that's where it gets exciting for me because it's really still uncharted territory. It's really building relationships with winemakers. Joel, we're talking to Joel Gunderson here at Cooper's Hall, the wine master and co-proprietor here. we got to jump out. Coming up more with Joel Gunderson, we're talking keg wine and wine in general this weekend. All right, welcome back. All right, welcome back to the Liquid Lifestyle. Once again, we're here with Joel Gunderson of Cooper's Hall, which again is uh, this extraordinary wine concept. Like I said in the first segment, kind of like a, a wine tavern. It's always lively. You've got this spectacular wall of silver taps. Uh, they've always got a little bit of hip-hop, a little bit of rock. It's, uh, if you haven't been here, I would make the time to come down. So in the first segment, again, we were talking about a phenomenon that we uh, are seeing a lot in our industry, which is keg wine. And uh, we were talking about how kegs uh, offer a level of freshness and creativity, new outlets for winemakers, uh, especially in the area of collaboration, which I thought was exciting. And I didn't even think about that be, uh, when I was preparing for the show. But going back to the keg wine thing, I guess, Joel, my next question for you would be, uh, are, do you see in the next 10 years just an explosion of wineries buying into this process? I absolutely do. Um, I think we see a lot of our best wineries in Oregon actually starting to adopt it. One of the people that comes to mind for me is John Paul Cameron with Cameron Wines. As you know, we were pouring Cameron Rosé down at Hamlet, and he jumped on board about two, three years ago, and he actually, his inspiration was the wine list at St. Jack, and he saw it happening and um, felt assured by it. And I think when we see people of that caliber that are incredibly interested in making quality product, jumping on board, um, then we know it's not just a trend. But beyond that, I'm actually in conversations with importers right now that are coming to me specifically talking about 
sorry, a little winery noise in the background there, um, <clears throat> talking about doing fun projects with wine from northern Italy. We're thinking about bringing over some Schiava from northern Italy for, for the wine program at Oven and Shaker and possibly Hamlet, Cooper's Hall as well. What the heck is Schiava, Joel? <laughs> you know, Schiava is a distant cousin of Syrah. Syrah traveled over the Alps and into northern Italy, and in that journey, uh, that grape became Schiava. Um, it's kind of my way of explaining how one clonal parent takes its journey to become a different sort of grape variety. So... That's pretty cool, man. If you know Joel, you know he's got three beautiful kids, and they have some pretty cool names. I'm thinking Schiava. If you guys decide one more on the on on this earth, uh, that might be a good name for a young lady. That's a re- that would be a really pretty name for a young lady. I, I think that uh, three is a good number, though. <laughs> I understand. I'm always trying to think of names for kids and and dogs. I was just thinking Pilsner would be such a great name for a little like wiener dog or something Absolutely. like that. Yeah, that sounds. I would name my dog Pilsner. Um, but yeah, so we have Schiava possibly coming in in keg. Um, I'm actually talking with an importer right now. Actually, it already happened. Um, Portland is going to be the exclusive landing point for some wine in keg, uh, from Salamanca, which is where they grow some of the best, uh, pigs for ham in Spain. So your famous, um, ham region in Spain is Salamanca. And we're going to be pouring that down, um, at Hamlet. A fantastic new concept by Brian McGarry and Kathy Wimps. So, thanks for the plug, Joel. <laughs> I'm re- I'm just really excited that this wine is here, honestly, and that it's in keg. So, I think when we opened Restaurant Saint Jack and I became the keg dude, um, I wanted to push the envelope with it because I realized, well, this is what I'm kind of being relegated to is this sort of wine and keg thing. So. Let's make it better. Let's, let's get better product onto the market, more diverse product onto the market, and really expand it. Um, but, you know, kind of going back to your original question of, is this a f- trend? Is it a fad? I, I think for the foreseeable future, we're going to see a lot of glass pour programs. And, you know, right now, Oregon is the only state in the union where you can do wine to go as far as, like, going and filling it up off a tap system, but I think as other states start to adopt, bring your own bottle, fill it up with wine, we'll see that really push the whole trend of wine and keg as well. So, um, you know, when you see the importers invest money into it, and also when you see massive corporations like Constellation Wines investing money into it, then you know that um, this, this is something that a lot of people with a lot of money are thinking about being around for a long time so that's great man it's so good to hear uh you know we were talking i think a few days ago about the uh, ability to you know to see perhaps some fortified and aromatized wines in kegs is that something you see coming down the pipe yes so aromatized wines we i we here at cooper's hall we do make a vermouth and um we have that in keg uh (laughs) so there's that but there's also imports so there's some spanish vermouths coming in in keg as well um, fortif- fortified wines, we will hopefully actually I'm in conversations with Damason Selections, an import group, the one that's bringing over the Salamanca wine. 
and hopefully we're going to see some Fino Sherry in keg by the end of the year. Um, you know, one of the exciting things with working with different restaurants, I think, is that it does allow uh, for this conversation to exist with importers and, and kind of be a central point where people can bounce ideas off and say, hey, Joel, like, we're thinking of bringing Fino Sherry onto the market. Would you like to be a sounding board for that in keg? And my answer is generally yes. Um, if, if I feel like it pays to go out on a limb and all we have to do is get staff behind it to sell the product and I know that we can do it because I know the product that we're bringing in is fantastic. So um, again, I, I just I think this keg wine thing has just become it can be it can it can either be an opportunity to innovate and introduce new things onto the market or it can be your sort of safe place. You do see a lot of happy hour wines in keg. You do see a lot of, you know, you do see some generic wines in keg too. So um, a lot of what I do is to bring the innovation in um, still with respect to the workhorses, still with respect to your happy hour wines. So, Real quick, we're going to jump out in just a second, but uh, what are the places one would find quality tap wine programs uh, around the greater Portland metroplex? <laughs> well... To plug a couple of restaurants that I work with, um, Oven and Shaker, Hamlet, Restaurant St. Jack, Grasse, of course Cooper's Hall where we have 36 wines on tap and 24 guest taps, um, and Irving Street Kitchen. Yeah, we can't forget them. They were they were kind of first in the market with that. Once again, with Joel Gunderson, wine superstar here at Cooper's Hall. We're jumping out. We'll be right back at you with more Liquid Lifestyle. All right, welcome back to the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. Uh, once again, this is Ryan McGarrian. I am sitting here at Cooper's Hall in Southeast Portland with their partner and wine master, Joel Gunderson. And we've had a great conversation up to this point about the kind of growing interest in keg wine and, and how that's kind of changing the wine world here in Portland and beyond. And uh, moving into our third segment, you know, I just I want to take advantage of having one of the great young talents in our industry uh, here with me and talk wine trends. Uh, you know, everybody's familiar with the basics in wine, and I think it's easy, you know, uh, as a weekend warrior perhaps to, to kind of, you know, drink the same style of wine week in, week out. You like it, but, you know, let's, ask, let's talk to Joel a little bit about, you know, some of the new things that are going on. I want to start specifically with the it, kind of the craze I'm seeing around sherry. First off, Joel, what is sherry? Well, sherry is a fortified wine from the region of Jerez down in southern Spain, very basically. Um, comes in a, a lot of styles, but the, the sort of the two mother styles are Fino and Oloroso. Um, and then when we talk about sherry, we talk about Flor, which is a sort of yeast formation that caps the wine, uh, most specifically in Fino Sherry. Um, but we also see Flor existing in other wine regions, or at least a cousin of that yeast, such as the Jura in eastern France. 
And we actually, you know, a little bit on the, in southern France as well, just down on the Mediterranean and in and, 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 uh, Provence. But Sherry is exciting because it has a ton of energy, honestly. I, I think that f for us in the, in the wine world, we're constantly looking for something that is energizing our imaginations. And I think the history of Sherry, the sort of ability for complexity in the, in, in, in the product, um, well, having a lovely salty component, a lovely um, acid component as well. Um, just kind of gets us going. I, I, I think one thing that Sherry is not <laughs> is, is kind of everybody's perception of that cooking Sherry that they might have tasted when they were 12 years old or that, uh, or, you know, their grandma's Sherry, which is generally a sweet cream style Sherry. Yeah, sure, that exists. But the majority of Sherry is this sort of um, incredibly sophisticated world of flavor, honestly. So when I think about Sherry, I think there's so much complexity, and people are a little bit intimidated by it, and rightly so, because it is a very different kind of, you know, beverage experience, so to speak. So, you know, just like, you know, when I think about how to introduce somebody to tequila, I might start them at an Añejo tequila, which is a, a tequila that's aged for a year that has some of the same notes that, say, a whiskey would, just to kind of give them a soft landing into the world of tequila. Could you, what would you, what would be that same kind of metaphor um, or analogy, I guess I should say, with regards to the world of sherry? Where would, where would you, you've never had, let's say, you know, our listener has never had sherry before. Where are they going to start? What time of day are we talking about? Well, naturally, most of us drink sherry at about 7.45 in the morning before our first cup of coffee, but that's a great question. Context is very important. Let's just say it's a pleasant afternoon. And it's 4.30, and you're with uh, people you like, and uh, you're pondering a wonderful day. Well, at 4.30 in the afternoon, I think there's only one place to go to with sherry, which is Manzanilla sherry. A little bit lower in alcohol. It comes from the city of San Lucar de Marameda. And it has a nice salty component, a nice nutty component, but more like almonds and sort of a green olive vegetal component. And that's exactly what you're going to be eating with it. You're going to be eating some, some almonds, some, some gr green olives, maybe some ham. And it's just incredibly refreshing. And when I think, when I think of Fino Sherry or Manzanilla, one, one place I, I like to point people towards is Champagne. Um, because it has a lot of those same, those, those same notes. You know, you think Champagne, you think oysters on the half shell. Well, think Manzanilla, think sherry think oysters on the half shell that's a fantastic way to start your evening off to start your afternoon off and and frankly it's it's just it's pretty sexy so um again i think it's and refreshing i, I think it's just a something that's overlooked something that we don't think about it but when you go there you're like why has no one put this in front of me before yeah, once again, I think it's because there is a lack of knowledge out there about Sherry, and uh, it's been fun to see you educate so many young industry people and bartenders. And, you know, when I think specifically of Manzanilla, like you said, which is a Fino Sherry, which, of course, is one of the driest forms, uh, I think one of the cool things is, you know, Manzanilla comes from a coastal town uh, that, you, that you mentioned, and you can almost taste the ocean, can't you? Absolutely. Yeah, there's that salty, briny component to it. 
um, which is why it probably goes so well with those oysters on the half shell, huh? Absolutely. You know, when I think oysters on the half shell, I think um, Muscadet Sevaman, I think Champagne, I think Manzanilla. So um, for all of those oyster lovers out there, go order that the next time you go into a restaurant. Make sure that the bottle's been freshly opened, too. I think that's a huge component as well, is a lot of times you walk into a restaurant and people don't know how to handle their sherry. And so a lot of people don't understand that, you know, manzanilla or a fino sherry needs to be consumed within three days of open, just like a white wine, just like a red wine. Otherwise, it's just going to turn, it's going to oxidize, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we want to get fino sherry in keg, honestly, is because... um, and we're working on it. We're going to get it here. Um, but, yeah, it's going to oxidize. It's not going to be as fresh. It's not going to have that energy. And people are rightly so going to be like, I don't get it. Totally understand. Now I want to shift gears again because we only have so much time here with Joel Gunderson uh, here at Cooper's Hall in southeast Portland. Rosé has exploded. And, you know, when I talk to my peers about it, you know, 20 years it was something that we would all kind of have made fun of something somebody drinking perhaps i've i had heard uh rosés referred to as cougar juice um in the past but uh now they have really um become a formidable style of wine that's uh favored by some of the top palates in the world in the summer months uh can you tell us a little bit about let's start with what is rosé joel uh, very basically rosé is a red grape that is process like a white grape or at least the best the best rosé is or some of the best rosés and where are some of the best rosés in the world coming from arguably bandol and provence is sort of the ground zero for rosé so your top producers like tampier like prado um are coming coming out of out of out of bandol so a nice little fishing village along the Mediterranean there in, in Provence. Um, but then Provence as a whole um, is where you're thinking of for your top rosés. I think for me, the sort of aha moment happened when I tasted for the first time, this is probably nine years ago, Close St. Magdalene's rosé. They're from Cassis along there, along the Mediterranean. Their, their, their vineyards actually overlook the Mediterranean. There's these beautiful cliffs, these bluffs right at the edge of their vineyard site. And um, I had thought of rosé probably as so many people do as, as kind of either this sort of cumbersome, clunky, overly juicy plonk. Plonk. That's an exciting new wine term for us this Saturday. Um, or White Zinfandel, you know, White Zinfandel, I think, was the, the American consumer's sort of exposure to, to rosé. And here was this Clos St. Magdalene Cassis rosé that literally blew my mind. It was, it was I, I... A life-changing wine experience, as it were. A life-changing wine experience, and, you know, unfortunately, I didn't have a... I couldn't go out and buy a bottle of that because I was just a poor wine intern so um i began to seek out things that i could i could afford (laughs) that's awesome man so once again we're with joel gunderson here at cooper's hall we've uh, talked about this new trend in wine keg wines 
Uh, we've talked about sherry and rosé, two uh, trends we've seen in the industry exploding within the industry in the past uh, few months uh, or in years. And, and we've got to jump out again, but when we come back, we will talk a little bit about Cooper's Hall itself. Excited for that. We'll be right back. back to the liquid lifestyle once again here at Cooper's Hall, a wine tavern as I like to call it here in southeast Portland again with Joel Gunderson, partner and wine master here and you know we spent the last three segments talking about keg wine and wine trends but you know what I just this has been such a revelation for me seeing what you're doing here at Cooper's Hall. Uh, I'd love to hear the story behind it. How did how did Cooper's Hall come together? What what is Cooper's Hall? Well Cooper's Hall as we call ourselves, is a winery and a tap room. Um, it, we're the only winery, and we're an urban winery, I should go ahead and state that, but we're the only winery in Oregon that's 100% committed to wine in keg. So all of our production goes into keg. Um, that, to date, if we were a, a traditional winery, we, we would have used about 32,000 bottles in the last year. So that's 32,000 bottles from the recycling bin that have not happened. But as far as the space is concerned and <clears throat> sort of our, and I'm doing air quotes here, tasting room that we have here, um, we, we kind of wanted to abolish that and, and say, well, what is actually engaging the, the customer right now? Or, you know, is everybody just clamoring for that tasting room experience? And what we realized is that no people really love breweries and you know you mentioned a tavern and and that's spot on because we really patterned our tasting room after that brewery experience you're there production is right next to you and um you're eating a burger you're relaxed you know um i think one of the things with wine is that a lot of people stress out about it and they don't want to mispronounce the name of the wine, you know, wines like Viognier or Gewurztraminer, um, that, you know, they, they look at it and they're like, I don't want to try to pronounce that. Um, you can actually order all your wine by number here. So that lets everybody off the hook. Um, but yeah, so again, the formation of this was pretty organic. We, our winemaker partners, uh, Phil Kramer with Alex Ellie Vineyards and Robert Carmen, our wholesale manager, approached the landlords. The landlords were interested in the project. They became partners. They approached Kurt Huffman uh, with Chef's Table, and he approached me, and we just kind of busted it out. And The idea of having so much wine on tap, 36 wines, is that right? Yeah, 36, um, was really to show that you know, kind of going back to one of the earlier questions is that wine in t on tap is relevant. And look, this is, this is what's happening. And, and really kind of being a trendsetter here at Cooper's Hall for the on tap movement. So we, with our own product and then also with guest taps. 
Man, it's pretty cool. So what we've got here in this big box of awesome is uh, we've got a winery with a tavern or restaurant within it. I mean, there's so many cool intellectual layers to it. And then when you get here, you'd think that it would be this overwhelming intellectual experience. But the way you guys, I think the hospitality culture, um, the music, like I said, I think of the first segment, the, uh, yeah, you got, uh, you got a little hip hop going every once in a while I come in and just, you hear some of the most unique and exciting stuff. It's, I like the juxtapositions, but, uh, I also want to talk just a little bit about, you know, you do wine, but you also do cocktails here. Tell me a little bit about your cocktail program. Yeah. So, um, I think one of the most disappointing things for people going into a wine bar is that there's no cocktails. Um, so we have beer on tap. We also do have a, a sort of small, tight cocktail program. Um, some of some of what we do is, you know, wine-based. We have um, sort of modified Boulevardier on right now, and we use some Bougie Cerdone in there, which is a uh, sort of sweet, sparkling wine from Savoie in France. Real quick, uh, let's uh, back that up if we could. What's a Boulevardier, or a Boulevardier, as you said? Uh-huh. Um, again, that's a modified Negroni too, right? So we're substituting rye for gin. Rye whiskey, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, has a nice bitter component as far as a flavor profile, and it's generally what I clock out with, either a Negroni or our bougie-inspired uh, substitution for that. Um, yeah, so I, I think also we do have some vermouth happening, you know, on the rocks with soda kind of to flesh that out as well and and show people that side of of the cocktail world and 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 also present sort of lighter octane spirits as well joel it has been awesome chatting with you today and um learning about not only this kind of exciting new evolution in wine this keg wine thing and the trends and then you know kind of hearing the backstory of cooper's hall we're grateful And uh, to all you listening, we look forward to getting back at you next week. And as always, remember to drink your best. (laughs) 